Hey everybody, this is Eric Krasno and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody that's been tuning in and sharing the show with your friends. If you have a second, we'd love it if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave a comment or follow us on Instagram, Spotify. On Instagram, it's Kraz plus one, K-R-A-Z plus one. I really appreciate the messages you guys have been sending and a lot of great suggestions. In fact, today's guest was a suggestion from a good friend of mine, and his name is Neil Francis. And uh, those of you that have not heard him, check him out. He's got a brand new record. Amazing piano player, songwriter, performer. His band is on fire right now. They've been playing all the festivals and clubs around the country. I actually got to catch them at Huluween, and I was not disappointed. Um, it's kind of rare in this scene that I'm in that people make really great records and also put on great shows, and he really does both. The record is great, and we talk a little bit about that process and uh, his musical history, his roots coming from Chicago, and what it's like to navigate the music industry in its current state, which uh, I think is a really interesting topic. Um, before we get into that, I want to mention that we're about to announce a bunch of shows from my band, Eric Krasno and the Assembly. We're going to be touring with Sun Little. We've got a bunch of dates coming in 2022, and I'm really excited about that. So keep your eyes open for those dates. And I just want to wish everyone out there a belated happy Thanksgiving. I'm very thankful for you guys and for this show and the community around this show. I've had such a privilege to talk to so many old friends, artists that I admire, people I look up to, and new friends. And uh, Neil's definitely one of those new friends. And I'm um, digging his music a lot. He's one of those artists that comes around every few years that you're like, ah, okay, I get this guy. He really combines a lot of those elements of old school music that I love, but but modern, a modern take on it, you know. And uh, I really dig what he's doing. It's really cool to see him start taking off. So anyway, we're about to get into that interview, but first we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. All right, he's an amazing songwriter, composer, arranger, piano player, vocalist. I'm really excited to have him on the show, and I'm a huge fan of his new record. I'd like to welcome today's Plus One, Neil Francis. Yeah, man, I appreciate you taking the time. Likewise, man. Thank you for having me on. Looks like you've been busy. Uh, I started looking at your tour dates. You're going hard, man. Yeah, feels good. It's a beautiful thing. It looks like I I noticed uh, some dates with my morning jacket. Yeah, man. I mean, uh, we just got off of a run with the Black Pumas. Oh, cool. Yeah. Playing some nice sized rooms, man. So that was really fun. It's funny because in the last couple of years, uh, there's been some artists that have kind of kind of propelled like through this like weird time, you know, and I feel like they were one of them that was like they kind of like blew up, you know, a lot of artists because of social media and and like the way people kind of consume music. Um, it's like you kind of get to know the artists on way different levels than I had access to growing up listening to music. I want to, I follow you on, on social media and, and, uh, I saw there was like the first thing, well, my, my good friend, Josh Knight works with you 
And oh, yeah. uh, he told me about your music a while ago and sent me that your last album. So I got to check that out. But I, <laughs> one of the things that I saw when I when I first like found you or followed you was you uh, ending a set or a song and like jumping in a lake or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but like I, there's like certain things like that, you know, like growing up listening to records um we didn't get to like have any sort of intimate relationship with the artists that we listened to. And I feel like that's changed um, and in some ways for the better and then in some ways, maybe not. But anyway, it's, it's nice to uh, meet you in person. Likewise, man. I mean, I know what you're saying too. I sometimes I've kind of likened it to like, I have some old promo from a, must have come in like a Elton John LP or something, but it's like a fan club booklet, you know? Right, right. And that's really kind of what Instagram has become on like a, on steroids, you know, just like totally (laughs) in everybody's face, you know, just like, this is, this is how everybody's living every minute of their lives, you know? Right, right. Yeah. It's, it's sometimes is a, a battle for me because um, I'm a little bit more into like creating the music in my own little space and then, you know, putting it out there, but I'm trying to learn how to incorporate social media into my world because a lot of people have a lot of success with kind of showing their entire process and like how they're, how they're making their music. Um, but, uh, yeah, I did, I, I listened to the new record by the way, and it sounds amazing. And uh, I was a little bit curious about the process. I read a little bit up on like um, what kind of happened uh, previous to making the record, but I wanted to hear from you a little bit about the process. You worked with Dave Friedman, who's a badass. I've been a fan of his for a while. I mean, the those Flaming Lips records are unbelievable. And he did a great job with you. And I was curious, first off, like how that was what it was like working with him and how like hands-on he was um, in, in creating the record. By the time we were working with Fridman, we had everything tracked. Um, it ended up on a 16 track, one inch machine. He took 12 days to mix and it was very regimented. So like um, he was super humble, super chill. Um, always asking, you know, exactly what we were going for. Um, but of course I wanted the David Fridman, um, you know, mastery. So right, like, right. um, he would take, uh, he'd tell us he was going to work on song X and then by four or five in the afternoon, we would have a mix and then we'd submit our first round of notes and he would send us back a mix at probably six or seven. And then that would be our overnight mix. And then, um, submit our final notes uh the morning after and uh he would make any corrections and then we would have our final mix before he began the next song and so right, the whole right. thing took probably 12 days you guys actually tracked it all on your own yeah um and that was done with uh sergio rios of orgone oh yeah um, yeah i love sergio yeah yeah, man. He produced our first record as well. Um, cool, cool. And so he came out to Chicago and we had built out a studio in the uh, church I was living in. And we started on a 388 Tascam 
quarter inch machine. Yep. And then um of this. Yeah, man. They just there's something about the the way it interacts with drums and bass specifically that just makes yeah. it really fat. So um we did all the uh instrumental like band tracks to the quarter inch machine and then we were gonna bounce everything to digital. Um which is what we had done for changes, but then we saw a pair of one inch 16 tracks uh, became available like in Chicago. Um, so I bought those and we recorded on uh, like a 15 Ips Tascam 16 track oh, for the cool. remaining overdubs. So did you end up going to the digital for, for the mixing process? Yeah. Um, Initially, I was going to like, I asked David if I could drive out with our tape machine because, like, yeah, yeah. he obviously didn't have like a one inch 16 track that's kind of a weird format. Yeah. Um, so, but he was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm just like, I'm not letting anybody in here right now because yeah. it was in the midst of, of COVID. the shit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so we bounced it. Some of the, I, I read a little bit here, like that in the writing process, um, you were living in a church uh, by yourself. Can you, can you like expand on what was going on there? What 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 were the circumstances there? Yeah, so I ended up living there. Uh, I was like an accompanist at this church yeah. every Sunday for like three years, and then I'd been living with my girlfriend um, through that time, and then we broke up like catastrophically when I was gotcha. on the road. And then, like, I needed a place to live. And I don't know what emboldened me to ask, but I was just like, hey, I know the parsonage is vacant. Is there any chance I could live there? And they agreed. So, you know, a week later, I was I was living there, and I lived there for, I think, like 20 months before wow. the, the congregation actually dissolved. Oh, wow. Because it was just dwindling. There were, like, five people left, and they are like, we're going to sell the building. So... And when you moved in there and, and, and the breakup happened or whatever, was that, uh, what was that before COVID? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was like October, 2019. You were, so you were there when lockdown kind of happened. Like yeah. And pretty much. Yeah. Dude, it, it was so fortunate too. Cause yeah. it, like my rent was basically in exchange for my services yeah. uh, on Sundays, you know? And yeah. it was like, well, you know what happened. Yeah, <laughs> it was like, of course. Everything went away. So it was good to have that roof over my head. Right, right. And were you, did you write the songs primarily there for this album? It was like half and half. Um, yeah, like five of the songs were written in that space, and then four of them were in the can leading into it. Is your writing process generally like sit down at a piano? and 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 do it that way and kind of do you voice memos or whatever or do you kind of have a uh, a method yeah I'm, I'm continually like recording fragments uh, via voice memo and then when i actually do have time to get into the studio that's when i'm like working out the ideas and the pandemic actually gave me the opportunity to learn how to record because previously I'd just been working with an engineer to yeah, create yeah. demos. Like initially, yeah, our uh, guitarist Kellen left a uh, an eight track and uh, at the church, and I just 
I bought a Tascam mixer, like a 16 channel mixer, and just yeah. learned how to use it. And that's how I demoed out the record. Uh, and yeah, so then you kind of you take the the sketches to the band, and the band kind of fleshes it out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this one was a lot more arranged just because I had the studio at my disposal for the demo process. But we definitely, you know, workshop the tunes um, extensively before recording. I love the guitar tones um, on the record. Thank uh, you, man. Yeah, that uh, a couple of them, but Prometheus was the one that I was just listening to that really had a unique sound to it. Um, and I was kind of curious how you how you got there. Are you are you guys constantly? tweaking and pedals and and all that together or is it kind of like you guys are each in your own zone a lot of it was sergio uh and mike novak the engineer but we were all yeah like um by the time we recorded that overdub for prometheus like we were like fully nocturnal um you know uh and we recorded the guitar through leslie for that Yeah, yeah um and like that was on the demo I made too, because I was just trying to go for like a bad finger type, yeah, you yeah. know, George Harrison thing. So yeah. like, um, that's where that came from. But like, Sergio was always down to get weird. You know, we yeah, recorded yeah. the piano was a. Sometimes we were using a CP seventy through like the shittiest speaker we had, right, um, right. you know, and just messing with stuff like that. It's really fun. Yeah, have you have you worked with Sergio at his place too? Yeah, that's where we did the first record. Oh, cool! At yeah, Killian. Yeah, I love that room. I haven't been there yet. It was funny because I, I moved I moved to L.A. and we talked about you know linking up and making some music, and then uh, you know the lockdown kind of happened. But uh, so I'm overdue to get over there. But I love the the sounds he gets are always killer. Been a fan. He's for a, a master, while. man. Yeah, me too. For sure. Um, so I'm curious a little bit about your musical background. Did, do you have, did you have a music, uh, a musical family? Like, was music in your house growing up? Both my parents really love music. Yeah. Uh, my dad had like a huge record collection, um, and my mom played a little piano and um, just started showing me some things like when I was really young. Um, but yeah, there was always like an eclectic mix of music playing. I got started getting lessons when I was four, but I was already like messing around. Just like my mom was showing me some stuff and then trying to learn stuff off the TV, you know. And did singing come like pretty early or was that, was it, was it instruments first? I, uh, I sang when I was like in middle school and yeah. in high school and then my voice started changing yeah. and I like didn't suffer through that. And it was like another 10 years before I tried singing again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. And was there any records or particular bands that you, that kind of flipped a switch for you or that you kind of, that, that made you be like, okay, I want to do that. The records that I remember connecting with at the youngest age were like Songs in the Key of Life, especially the side that started with I Wish. I was just like playing that over and over. Um, Inner Visions. Um, there was like a, a Who comp called 
meaty, beady, big and bouncy. I remember that, that had yeah. like uh, like substitute and Boris the Spider and like uh, some other like singles. Um, Hot Rocks was like a, a Rolling Stones double LP comp. Like yeah, yeah. these were just my dad got like fifty records out that he wanted me to listen to. You're uh, what are they called? Meat and potatoes of seventies uh, rock and soul. You yeah. know. Yeah, I had I had like a lot of those same records. Same thing from my dad too. Yeah, man. Yeah. Those like early and later uh, Beatles comps, like exactly. with the, yeah. the red and the blue. Yeah, yeah, I had those same records, man. It's funny. And my dad, there were certain records that he'd put on for like when I would know. Okay, like my my like my my dad's friends would come over and they'd start like. I, when I knew it was like cool to like sneak around the house, it was like when Let It Bleed would come on because that would mean <laughs> meant they'd had a few drinks and you know yeah, there's yeah, a certain yeah. scent in the air, and I'd be like, all right. Uh, but uh, yeah, but that and, and and tons of Beatles. Yeah, it's funny how that kind of like shapes your mind without even knowing it, you know? Because it was like later when I really got into that music. Because at first I wanted to hear, I was like super into Hendrix and Zeppelin. Cause that was kind of like my own zone. That wasn't, even though I loved the records they played, it was like, you know, you kind I had to find my own thing. But then when I got to kind of come back full circle, I was like appreciative for those records being like in my head, you know? Same. Yeah. Like I, uh, my dad didn't have like any Hendrix or Zeppelin. Like he was born in 1953. So like he yeah. was right in the, he would have been at that age to buy those records, but you know, like there's allegiances you form, I guess, in that time period totally, where like totally. if you liked the Stones, you weren't a Beatles guy or like, you know, just random stuff like that. Yeah. And of course, like, yeah, I, I got into Zeppelin and uh, Funkadelic and James Brown on my own, you know, like all, and then deeper and deeper into like the more cutty stuff from there. But yeah, it definitely opened the door. Do you, What was your first band like? It was definitely like a classic rock band. Yeah, it was yeah. straight up just like we covered Roadhouse Blues by The Doors, yeah. and like, dude, we played like Take a Care of Business. Nice, <laughs> and like just I was singing and playing keys too. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah, cool. And, and then we also had a uh, later in high school. I formed a band called Reverend Funk Connection. Yeah, which was like just totally. Uh, trying to be funk jazz kind right. of thing. Right. But it was right. so fun. It was so fun. Nice. Nice. And then when did the the herd happen? Yeah, so that was after well after college. Okay. Uh two of the guys from that high school band actually. Um Lucas and Bryant. Yeah, I I was like the last guy to join the herd. Okay. Um but yeah, that was like a few a few good years with that band and we made a record with Sergio too oh, which okay, was right, how right. I met him got you got you and I think those guys opened for you with Lettuce after I was in the band okay I see because I knew that we crossed paths there but I wasn't sure if you were a part of it at that time I was like uh, I'll say like I was probably like the drunk guy at a bunch of parties you were at you know <laughs> like <laughs> nice, nice. during that time of my life yeah you yeah, know yeah so and did the herd like tour a lot? Did you tour a lot with them? Yeah, we probably got one or two little tours in before yeah. I was, you know, ceremoniously let go. Got it. Got it. 
we wet our whistles. And it actually, it was super important for me to learn how not to do things. I mean, we had like, we had a great time in a lot of ways, but also it was like the worst time of my life. Yeah. And we just did so many things wrong. <laughs> like as a band, like yeah. as a business, it was just like an, a masterclass in how not to run a band. So um, I'm super grateful for it just because it, it was like, it made me realize that breaking into uh, like, being able to tour was possible, but yeah. also like that it didn't have to be like crawling through broken glass. Right. Know? So <laughs> the period between that and you kind of deciding to go like to pursue your own thing, like what happened during that time? Like, did you have a moment where you're like, okay, I really want to just do my own thing and, and do my own songs. Was there like a process between those two things? I got fired from the herd in like, you know, early 2015. And I got sober in October of that year. And then I started like, I was just working at, you know, I was working at like the UPS store and like telemarketing gigs and just random stuff and kind of letting everything reachieve some sort of stability. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't really a problem that I <laughs> like nobody was calling me for gigs. So it was like, <laughs> it was, it was chill, man. I had a lot yeah, of time yeah. to like, just think about what I wanted to do. And eventually it just started, you know, since I wasn't getting calls, I just was like, all right, well, I'll start jamming with Mike and PJ again. Um, and just started works workshopping some songs that became the changes record. Gotcha. Um, uh, but that took a while, you know, it was like yeah. a year or two. And that record came out on coal mine records, right? Yeah. That, uh, it was like their, their other imprint. It was like Karma Chief is okay. the name of that label. And how did, uh, that kind of connection happen with the, with the label? I sort of had them in the back of my mind because a lot of material Sergio produced ended up on coal mine, like right. Orgone and some of the other like monophonics was yeah. doing a distro deal with them. Yeah. So like I knew that there was a connection there, but I, um, we didn't really start talking to them until I met my manager, Brendan. And I had already had like one tracking session at Killian and he had done a record with Sergio. So he was just like down to, he was like, Oh, I really got to listen to this. Yeah. Um, he got interested in the project and then he also knew Terry at coal mine and so we got the conversation started from there we'll be right back after this short break I'm assuming that record came out and then you went and went out and started playing shows and, and touring behind that. Am I correct? Yeah. I like we actually, we played our first show maybe a year before, almost a year before that record came out. And Josh was actually, we had the record in the bag. Um, but the, the proper release wasn't until September of 2019. So like, we played our first show in November 2018 and somehow 
through the grace of God, Josh was at that show and we started the conversation with paradigm like a few days later. Right. And that was like a miracle because as you know, getting a booking agent is like this such a mysterious piece of the puzzle. Uh, yeah. I feel like, um, that was such a boon to our success, but yeah, that was before we had anything out and we had singles out later that year, but we were touring for probably nine months, 10 months before that record even came out. I, you know, talk to a lot of younger musicians that are starting right now, okay? And in mm-hmm. the current, like, chaos of what the music industry is, what would you say are the most important pieces to, like, get things moving? You know what I mean? Because I, now I'm seeing your name pop up in all these different places. And I I personally think this new record of yours is going to be something really important, you know? Um, Thanks, Ben. And and so I, I I'm curious, like getting to where you've where you are now and poised to go even further. If you could t- talk to yourself eight years ago <laughs> and could give yourself like the shortcuts, what are some of the things you would say? I think it was important to have like a compelling product in my hand. Yeah. To begin with, so like the music definitely came before anything. You know, that first trip out to L.A. to record with Sergio was entirely financed myself. And, like, I didn't have anything going, so it was sort of a crapshoot. But I had those recordings. And then the most important catalyst for everything that's happened was meeting my manager, Brendan. Mm -hmm. Because I don't have the capacity. I might have the intelligence to do all the administrative stuff, but I don't have the capacity. I don't have the time in the day to do both. And it took someone who believed as much as I did in the project, but who was also just another brain to like follow up, hit people up on email, just like connect all the dots, man, and handle that administrative stuff. And so, um, you know, it was him. I got connected with, um, my lawyer, as well around the same time and like that facilitated the label discussion. And then once you have a label, a manager, a lawyer and a booking agent, you have a career um, that, you know, at least the, the starting pieces. And then from there, and, and I think there was a really important piece that you said in the beginning there, which was that you believed in yourself enough to invest in making a great product Cause I think that's something also that people get scared to do. And sometimes it's like an impulse decision that can change everything. Did you have that record recorded before you met uh, or linked up with Brendan, your manager? I had four tracks. Okay. You had recording. some tracks. What would you say, how would you um, advise an artist that does not have a manager to find one. Cause I think that's a lot of things that a lot of times an issue, right? Well, I'll meet really talented artists that don't have that, like, you know, ride or die dude, you yeah. know, or that manager. And, and it's, a, and it's kind of hard just to like cold, you know, find someone, you know, was Brendan know. a friend of yours to be before that or. Yeah. So we were acquainted. It was dude, it was really just, very lucky. Yeah. Um, and like, I, I remember having the discuss the same discussion we're having, um, 
with David Shaw. He was one of the first people I sent uh, my recordings to. Yeah. Um, and he's like, this is dope, man. And yeah, like you should, you should do something with this, man. I was like, okay, what do I do next? He's like, yeah, you should like find a manager. I'm like, how do I do that? And he's like, I don't know. You got any friends? And like, I was like, oh shit, not really. Uh, so yeah, yeah. yeah, Brendan was an acquaintance, but I didn't know him very well. And we just ran into each other at a show and he struck up a conversation with me because our bands had shared a bill back in the mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. And then I mentioned that I was working with Sergio and he had done a record with Sergio previously. Oh, so that's he right. Was yeah, you mentioned that. Okay. Very interested to hear the tracks. And he actually, I didn't send him anything for like three days. Yeah. Just like a typ- typical young, dumb artist thing to just like not advocate for yourself. And so he, he followed up, which is like the kind of dude he is. And uh, he dug it enough. And it was like he was looking to get into a management role. Right, um, right. So it was like really the stars aligning. Um, yeah, that is sometimes because, uh, yeah, a, as a young artist, you know, no matter how talented and good you are, you're not making money in the beginning. So it's you got to right. get someone that's got that. A, it's like the belief and B, like they want to do this. You know, they want, yeah, they, they're hungry the same way we are as artists. Absolutely. And I know that like, so like, yeah, there's either that ride or die, like we're going to, you know, churn this butter ourselves kind of mentality or like someone might potentially link, link up with an established manager that has a roster. Yeah. But then of course their time is dis- divided. Um, and so um, sometimes that's its own pitfall. Yep. Yep. I talk, that's another thing, you know, that's always that I talk about a lot, you know, with, with young artists, like I said, um, that are searching for the right thing. It's like hard to just kind of, you know, submit your music to these huge companies because they might take you on. But like you said, you may not get the attention that you would from like, you know, a younger, hungrier homie. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But you will get more experience possibly, you know, and possibly more connections. You know, I think that's an interesting thing um, that like agents bring to the table, you know, because they might get you on tour with other people on their roster or other people, um, that they know and have relationships with. Yeah. I mean, that was huge for us. So you're from Chicago. How much Chicago music did you ingest like growing up and, and, or even just later on, like being in the scene, like, cause you know, whenever I think of Chicago, I think blues, obviously I think like buddy guy, I think like, but I'm curious. I, I don't know much about like the modern day Chicago scene. I played on the blue scene a lot, like yeah. initially, like yeah. from an earlier age, like starting when I was like 18. And that was like a jobbing type yeah. uh, situation. Um, like backing up artists and. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was rad. It was a great education too, because we weren't just playing like one, four, five. Right. Uh, blues it was like you know sill johnson and johnny guitar watson and like bobby blue bland and all this like crossover soul funk blues stuff so it was like a really great education but also like not a lot of those acts are touring nationally right um and the same with like the little like jam scene that um we were on when we were like 
dude, like when you're, uh, when the first Lettuce album came out, we were just like, dude, I can't even describe to you like the sort of waves that made within <laughs> our like, you know, we were probably all like 22 at the time. And I just remember being at a party and someone being like, you got to listen to this. And it was like exactly what I wanted to be doing. It was like, you know, Ohio Players and Roy Ayers and Funkadelic and Parliament all sort of just, you know, done really well. So, but again, like there wasn't that, I don't know, there wasn't a lot of like, didn't seem like there was a lot of opportunity in Chicago. So a lot of really good musicians ended up moving to New York or LA or Nashville. Yeah. I feel like Chicago is sometimes not talked about in like the, you know, people talk about Austin, Texas, think about talk about Nashville, even new Orleans. I mean, Chicago, they do, but it's always like kind of in a past tense. Mm -hmm. Would you say that they're overlooking some talent that is there? I mean, there's incredible musicians coming out of Chicago. Yeah. Um, and there's also very strong scenes that I wasn't a part of like, um, the hip hop scene. I wasn't really, uh, interacting with that at all. Yeah. Um, the gospel music scene is just like incredible. And so there's musicians that are crossing over as well between those traditions. But I mean, yeah, you're right. It's like, there used to be a, like big time record industry yeah, in Chicago. For sure. Huge. Like, you know, Curtis Mayfield, Curtis Mayfield and yeah, Mercury, say, yeah. uh, Chess and Cadet, you know. So many records. Yes. Yeah. So many records in the 60s, 70s and whatnot. I mean, I still, I mean, I still love Chicago as a city, but you don't hear a ton of like new artists. I mean, I, I think, yeah, like in hip hop, obviously you had like, you know, Common and, and, uh, and Kanye and, like certain people coming out of there, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not something I hear every day when I'm like, Oh, this dude from, you know, so see, hearing you were from Chicago, I was like, Oh, cause actually my, my parents are from Evanston. So oh, right like, on. Yeah. And so, and then my, my uncle was there till, till recently. And which is how I met Josh. Cause he used to work with my, my uncle. So I have a lot of family ties to Chicago, but um, anyway, I don't spend enough time there, you know, to really know the scene. Oh no, there's heavy cats, man. There's yeah. there's heavy cats in there. Uh but like I said, like before this project sort of got any legs, I was primarily relying on like wedding gigs and, you know, blues gigs during the week to sort of yeah. you know, make ends meet with my day job going on. That's how a lot of guys are working. So one of the things that really drew me into your album was I really love um, your writing style and and your lyric style. And I was curious if you had some favorite lyricists that you'd like to mention, like people that kind of, that you refer to in terms of like, Oh man, if I could say it like that. For sure. Um, Definitely. uh, Randy Newman comes to mind. Uh, Alan Toussaint always just for his production as well. Um, I, I guess like it took me a long time to connect with lyrics because I was uh, a piano player. I was just sort of listening to the instrumental aspects of music for a long time. And it wasn't until I started working on this project that I was fully invested in writing lyrics, you know? Is that the hardest part for you in terms of writing songs? 
It can be. It just it it just takes me a long time. You know, I, yeah, yeah. sometimes I I'll sit down with like my buddy Chris Gelbuta, um, and he's like a professional Nashville songwriter, yeah, and yeah. so he'll just rattle off lines that yeah, are like yeah, fully yeah. formed, and you're like, "That's great. Why don't we use that?" And he's like, "Nah, like you know, yeah." It's just off the cuff for him, but uh, yeah, for me, it's a it's, it's more of a roundabout process. Do you end up writing, rewriting, and rewriting a lot of times? I, I do edit uh, quite a bit, you know, from the original draft. But in general, it's write the music first, then write the lyrics around that. Yeah, definitely. Are you already working on songs for the next album? I've got a lot of, um, again, I'm like, left with like a lot of fragments as I go along that are maybe ideas. And then I've also got probably 12 to 15 demos in various states of completion that weren't drawn from, from uh, for In Plain Sight. But I'll, as I like, as our tour continues and as I just listen to more stuff, my vision for the next record keeps changing and I'm just like, Oh, I want it to sound like this. And then the next day I'm like, no, I want it to sound like this. And so, yeah, yeah. I have no idea, man. I just know I got to get back in the studio. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I hear that. I hear that. Well, I am excited to hear all of it, man. What's, uh, so you guys have kind of extensive tour schedule for, for the next foreseeable future. We're adding more stuff next year every day. So, we get some time off around Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then it's we're hitting it hard next year. Right, right. And you have you've had the same band the whole all along. Uh, I've had this band since like January of 2020, and yeah. um, the the rotating chair was really the drummer prior right. to that. Yeah, yeah. And then we we got our guy. And they're all Chicago. Yeah, everybody lives in Chicago. Well, I hope to see you. Uh, one of these days on the road, man. And, uh, maybe, maybe do a writing session one of these days. I would love that dude. Yeah. Big fan. Thanks man. Yeah. I appreciate you taking the time, man. And congrats on the new album. I I love it. Um, and I see lots of amazing things, uh, in your future, man. Thanks brother. I appreciate you taking the time as well. Absolutely. All right, I want to thank Neil for being on the show. Really cool to connect with him and learn about his history and his process. Um, Before we go, I'm going to play a track off of his new album, In Plain Sight. This track is called Prometheus.
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Osiris. Oh,